0: Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. On Thursday, Statistics New Zealand said the Consumer's Price Index rose 6.7% in the 12 months to March. It's the fourth consecutive quarter that Consumer's Price Index, or CPI inflation, has been near or above 7%, which is the highest level it's been since 1990. In its oversight of monetary policy, the Reserve Bank has a CPI inflation target of 1% to 3%. Thus, in an attempt to reduce inflation, the Reserve Bank has now increased its official cash rate, which is New Zealand's benchmark interest rate, by 500 basis points since October 2021 to 5.25%. So are the Reserve Bank's efforts to reduce inflation, including by engineering a recession, in Governor Adrian Orr's words, working? And are its tools, or tool, fit for purpose? To discuss this, I'm joined by Tim Hazeldine Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Auckland. Hi, Tim, and welcome to the Of Interest podcast.
1: Hi, Gareth. Good to be here.
0: Firstly, Tim, what's your assessment of where the inflation fight is at following these latest CPI figures?
1: Well, I think the inflation tide is going out. It's receding, which is good. The question is whether it would have gone out anyway, or whether King Canute and the Reserve Bank had anything to do with it.
0: Um, that's interesting that you say it's going out. Um, one thing I did note, I mean, obviously, that that figure yesterday, that 6.7%, it's down from the last quarter. It's lower than most of the economists or all the economists were forecasting. It's lower than what the Reserve Bank was forecasting. Yeah. But the, the non-tradable or the domestic inflation figure was 6.8% which is the highest ever um, in the series dating back to 1999.
1: So is that still not of some concern? Well, I'd I'd like like to, of course, talk about the non-tradables, but just just something on the actual headline numbers themselves, if I may. As you said, it's the 12 months to uh, end of December, CPI went up by 7.2%, 12 months to end of March of this year by 6.7%. Now, you might think... Well, that's only uh, half a basis point, it's not a lot. But you've got to remember that th- this, the three months, second, third, fourth quarter of 2022 are in both of those numbers. right? So the, the, the inflation rates in those three quarters is included in the 6.7 and included in the 7.2, which means that to get a decrease from 7.2 to 6.7 overall, there has to have been a substantial decrease in the quarterly inflation rate of, of the first first quarter of this year compared with first quarter of last year, and indeed there has been. The first quarter of last year, prices rose by 1.8%, first quarter of this year by 1.2%. That's a 33% decline, and that's why I think that that's the indicator that you really should be interested in, and that's encouraging.
0: Okay. And what about that uh, that non-tradable or, or domestic inflation? I mean, Stats NZ specifically highlighted higher prices for construction, rents, and ready-to-eat food.
1: Yeah, well, we'll talk about where it all started. This uh, this whole business of, of CPI inflation at rates unheard of for, as you said, three decades but more. Um, uh, to me, uh, that's going to what I'm going to suggest is that that means that the Reserve Bank hasn't got a hope of doing anything about it. And we need to have other instruments to deal with any sort of entrenchment of non-tradable inflation.
0: Okay, that's fascinating. And we will we'll delve into that shortly. But let's just go back, I guess, a step from that. And I'm really keen to, to ask you, What, in your view, has caused this big inflation surge that we have seen over the last couple of years? What are the reasons for it?
1: Oh, the one big reason is COVID, I think. No, both directly, on three ways. Uh, COVID, first of all, uh, put a lot of people out of the workforce, reduced the supply side of the economy. It increased a lot of costs straight off, especially transportation, logistics costs, container rates, I think doubled or whatever, and that seems to have led to an increase in pricing pressure right through the economy internationally and domestically. And then COVID also, third thing, uh, induced our governments to try and relieve some of the pain that being out of work or not being able to go to work was causing. And in the first, you said two years, and COVID is a three-year-old thing now, and that first year in particular, our government and other governments stepped in with a lot of spending. You know, they kept wage subsidies, all sorts of things, shovel-ready projects and that, and people are now saying, well, that may be fueled demand inflation. So whether, and that's a moot point still, how much demand inflation it caused, it didn't cause any demand inflation in the first 12 months, now that inflation has turned up, is it demand inflation, which is more likely to be responsive to interest rate changes, although not very much, or is it or how much of it is supply push inflation of costs going up and and profit margins going up and prices going up, excused, if you like, or justified in the first instance by COVID, but continuing despite COVID easing. So COVID, COVID inflation, I think.
0: Okay. And COVID inflation and, I guess, the responses there to the virus itself and the pandemic. So you're talking there about... What governments did in terms of wage subsidies, etc. What about what central banks did? What about you know the Reserve Bank here, obviously taking the OCR to that record low and keeping it there for a long time of just zero point two five percent, and also the, the the quantitative easing, the the buying of government bonds mm. in the secondary market. Did those factors? How much how much influence did those factors have in your well, view? I,
1: I, I'm not sure about quantitative easing. It, it it's it's an again it's moot. It's argued how much that is inflationary or was inflationary, perhaps it, it was. Um, they did do try to help out with avoiding a recession, I think, in those um, first two and a half years or so before they started r- bringing it up again, the interest rate. Whether that has any entrance at all is just about as unknown as whether the t- the turnaround, the about-face, that they've, has now taken up from... Well, five percentage points, the bank rate, as you pointed out, uh, whether that's had any effect either. Uh, We don't know, and it's quite possibly hasn't. Remember that if inflation is demand pull, too much money chasing too few goods, then inflicting this pain, as you referred to, on the economy of unemployment, a recession – Um, is reducing the supply of goods in the economy. It's throwing people out of useful work and going on the dole. So that can't be good at correcting an imbalance of demand and supply. Inflation also is increases in prices. And although it artfully is kept out of the CPI, the Official Consumer Price Index, for many New Zealanders with a mortgage, uh, the biggest price they pay is the interest rate on their mortgage. And for me, that interest rate on the mortgages just has more than doubled in the last year or so. So that's a, that by itself. That's an, a huge increase in the cost of living for many people. So you're going sort of two steps backwards in your in your Reserve Bank type monetary policy before you got much of a chance of making any progress.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that. So I mean, obviously, I I have a mortgage myself, and and our mortgage is a is a fixed term one, which most New Zealanders. Go for. And it's not up for renewal until December this year. So um, the OCR hikes and the subsequent flow through to mortgage rates hasn't yep. hit me personally yet. So I have a shock awaiting me in December. Um, so there is that sort of slow transmission of monetary policy through mortgage rates. Um, but we did notice in two big business um, surveys this month. So the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research's quarterly. Survey of Business Opinion and Myob's Survey of Small Businesses. They did suggest that businesses are really now starting to feel the impact of a of of um, well high inflation, rising interest rates, and a slowing economy. So, do do you think there is th- that there are signs out there that we are indeed going to have this recession that Adrian Orr uh, talked about? Engineering.
1: Well, I, I'm afraid there are signs that it's going to happen, but. What I worry about is that it's a horrible thing to do to the economy, to, to deliberately put people out of work. It's the most miserable thing that one of the most miserable things that can happen to people is being thrown out of work. And to do that because you, you think they have to be sort of... Well, it's more. that Obviously, they're not going to be putting their wages up because they haven't got any wages anymore, but it's sort of to frighten the other 98% of people who are in work, or 96%, 95%, into not putting their wages up and perhaps... Uh, frighten their employers into not putting their prices up. Well, it is, as everyone has said, a pretty blunt instrument and a painful instrument to apply. And and I'm suggesting, and others are, I hope, that we should be looking for, to put it mildly, instruments, policy instruments which might assist the Reserve Bank. Reserve Bank isn't asking for them. The Reserve Bank is quite happy to have a monopoly on anti-inflation policy, which it has by statute almost in New Zealand. But maybe they should, whether they want it or not, get some help.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's interesting, and we will come to that shortly. I just there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we get into that type of issue. Is um, interestingly, if you look overseas, and uh, I'm particularly thinking here of. Um, a report I saw from the European Central Bank recently where they said they're closely monitoring developments in underlying inflationary pressures that stem from both wages and profits. Mm. So that's interesting to me because I haven't noticed the Reserve Bank in New Zealand talking about corporate profits or margins and whether this is a contributor to inflation in New Zealand. Just wondering, to your mind, is there any evidence in New Zealand that it is? And should the Reserve Bank also be looking at or talking about Profits.
1: I, th- I don't know if the Reserve Bank are the people to do it because it's just not on their monetarist model, but I think we should, I've suggested the Commerce Commission should have its mandate expanded to become a price watch commission and even a price watch commission with a mandate to roll back price increases if they think, especially for non-tradables, they're not justified. Um, I, however, I can't point to studies. I'm looking for them. You're right. I've seen the sort of things you've seen, sort of unease out there. Uh, I've seen the expression used: firms, big corporates, are discovering they have quote some real pricing power, <laughs> and they're using it. You know, certainly, I think. In the, the you mentioned construction prices, I think the increases that we've had in things like drywall for building and st- building material prices, look. Suspiciously, like profiteering, to me, as, as someone who's actually doing some building, is having to pay them. Perhaps I'm a bit paranoid about it, but so I think we need we, well, we need someone to actually investigate this. It won't be the Reserve Bank; it could be, say, the Commerce Commission.
0: That's an interesting one because obviously the the Commerce Commission has been doing these these so-called market studies in recent years, yeah. building. Um, building materials was one, supermarkets was another. Yeah. I mean, we, we haven't seen a lot of action come out of those yet but certainly those, the, at the big end of town, the supermarkets and Fletcher buildings and perhaps the big banks do have market power but you, what you're talking about would be the Commerce Commission looking more broadly across the economy.
1: Oh, and those industries you mentioned as well, but look, instead of the Commerce Commission has got a very limited model as well. They basically do do things the way the Americans do it in their huge economy, they say, ask the question, are there any barriers to entry in this industry? So is there anything that stops competitors coming in, new competitors who would come in if the incumbents, the existing firms, were abusing their market power? They don't. If they don't find any barriers and they assume, they say, well, therefore, the incumbents can't be abusing their market power. Well, in a country the size of New Zealand, we are always going to have market power. And we have a duopoly in home hardware and thereabouts. We have a duopoly in supermarkets thereabouts. We have four big Australian-owned banks, you know, right through our economy. we're And we're going to have – we're going always going to have that probably because we don't have big enough markets in many cases to support a lot of firms. So barriers to entry are fundamental their the size of market, and the Commerce Commission can't do anything about that. What the Commerce Commission, I think, missed out on, especially in its big supermarket study, which came out last year, 800 pages without ever really boring in on the possibility that the incumbents, progressive and foodstuffs, are abusing market power and charging too much money. They didn't... They said oh, they they said something like, we couldn't find any evidence of collusion or price parallel pricing. Well, they didn't look very hard.
0: And it's a case of maybe... Th- from what you're saying, that you would, you would argue that the, the Commerce Commission's mandate is too narrow. So how would you expand that mandate?
1: I would say they really have to be finding out about prices everywhere and, and investigating costs, investigating pricing practices. Uh, you, of course, they should be looking out for conspiracies and things, but you won't find many of those. That these firms don't need to conspire to put their prices up. They just have to do what they did last year, and everyone no one rocks the boat. So they need to get really sort of, I think, highlighting this stuff, making us angry, making the politicians angry, and then, if and then possibly doing something you know quite radical in New Zealand terms, having the power to roll prices back.
0: So this would be um, a, a case of really beefing up the Commerce Commission's power and resources, and letting them really go for it, I guess.
1: Yeah, it might be. The Commerce Commission haven't asked for this, <laughs> but I think they should be. Given something like that, yeah. well, we should at least be talking about that.
0: Okay. And back to the employment. Um, I mean, that's – or unemployment, um, both sides of the coin there. I mean, obviously, alongside the Reserve Bank's um, inflation mandate, they also have this mandate in their monetary policy for um, maximum sustainable employment. Now, this one, I find this personally quite a confusing concept um, because it's not a hard and fast figure of, you know, maximum sustainable employment is 3% or 4% or 5%. It's based on a whole lot of factors that that they weigh up in the economy. Um, is, is this, I mean, what's your take on this? I mean, what does maximum sustainable employment mean to you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right to be <laughs> puzzled by it, because it, it does move around and that's part of it. I don't know how much economic history you want here, but... We had a revolution in economics 50 years ago. It was the monetarist counter-revolution. It was countering Keynesian economics. And and they really went for broke. And whereas Keynesians tend to be worried mostly about unemployment or employment, or unemployment, part of that, uh, and, and regard unemployment as a bad thing, as most people still do, uh, the monetarist totally turned it upside down. They said, no, you've got this wrong. Unemployment is a good thing. You think, well, how the heck did they come up with that? They said, no, unemployment is voluntary. It's workers choosing to devote themselves to full-time job search to get a better job. And that's that's the th- what was then called the natural rate of unemployment and if, and is now called the sustainable rate of employment or sustainable rate of unemployment both add up to 100%. And it's total bullshit. On on its own terms and even as a predictive device because if you ask them, and you've highlighted this, what is the sustainable rate? I'll I'll do it in terms of unemployment. Um, Well, in the 70s, they said, oh, it must be 8%. If we go below that, we'll have inflation again because we're pushing people into jobs they don't really want too soon, blah, blah, blah. So they tried that. And then we through the great moderation period of the 90s and through to the global financial crisis, unemployment trended down and down and down and down and inflation didn't go up at all. So, so once we'd had the bulk of recession and everything of the early 90s, inflation was hit on the head and it, stayed, it didn't wake up again. So through, through nearly two decades, we had in New Zealand, in America, in the Western world, we had low and stable inflation, with a steadily reducing unemployment rate. So the monetarists, instead of saying, oh, we got that wrong, they just kept saying, oh, well, the natural rate must be 7%. Oh, no, it must be 6%. And they just kept lowering it. Now probably, I don't know what the Reserve Bank says, they probably say it's 4 or 5%. Do they? Do you know what they say it is?
0: Well, they they say that we are beyond it at the moment. So our 3.4% official um, unemployment no. figure from um, Stats NZ is, is beyond maximum sustainable employment, yeah. um, is their current view. But they, they never give a specific target. No. Um, so okay. it, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Look, so, so in terms of, you know, you, you, you said that the RBNZ could use some new tools. I mean, obviously, as you say, they're not asking for them. And the government could do more. And you've given that example of the Commerce Commission. Let's start with the RBNZ first, and then we'll look at the government. What tools could the RBNZ use, do you think? What do you think they should have?
1: I think they're irredeemably lost to to moderation here. I think they should be... What they do really well is prudential regulation of the banking system. they didn't do very well in America, of course, because we had the global financial crisis, but we didn't have a global financial crisis in our banking system, our finance sector in New Zealand. And that's partly because our reserve bank is very cautious, And partly because our four Australian trading banks, to give them some credit, were very cautious as well. And they didn't uh, issue all these fake, phony, derivative-type instruments. They were were conservative. And we didn't suffer uh, bank failures and stuff as Americans and the British did. And I think that's what they're good at. And I think they should carry on doing that. Of course, they have to set the bank rate. But I think it should recede. It shouldn't... Necessarily be even something that gets much attention in the press anymore. It should just be more of a technical thing, wholesale money rate, rate That that the trading banks can sort of lodge money in the reserve bank. I think that's what it actually means. And that the rest of the economy is looked after elsewhere.
0: So, elsewhere, I assume you mean the government?
1: Well, I think the government can't just do it, The, the people have to do it too. I hate that word conversation, but we, as a nation, have to think about. We don't want inflation, especially if inflation causes the Reserve Bank to to put members of our family out of work. But what what do we need to agree on then? One of the things I've suggested is something that used to be called an incomes policy, uh, and is off in Scandinavia where it's, and I think perhaps Germany, it's called tripartism, is where the government. Gets involved in meetings with the heads of the trade unions and the heads of the employer organizations and the businesses and says, look, here's, here's the information coming out from the Reserve Bank and from the newly invigorated Commerce Commission. Uh, it looks like we, we will have re- G, real GDP growth of about 2% this year. Who should get it? How should we apportion it? And could we sort of have targets about how we could give? fairly distribute that in profits and wages without getting onto this sort of uh, inflationary spiral nonsense that we've been stuck with. So that that's something I think we should be thinking about. We can't just leave it all to the government. We have to, as, as workers and employers, be involved as well.
0: In your Stuff article, you also wrote about Farmac, which uh, that sounded sort of quite interesting to me, can you sort of elaborate? I've got that in, in front of me here. Yes. You talked about extending our drug buying agencies, the agency, the very successful Pharmac, to sourcing other products and services, including medical services, at a lower price from international suppliers. What would that mean in practice?
1: So I think we, we, we agreed, does everyone know what Pharmac is? It's a it's a drug buying monopoly, a monopolist we call it, a, a monopolist on the buying side of the market and it It negotiates prices with the big international pharmaceutical companies for drugs to be supplied pharmaceutical drugs to be supplied to our health system. I think am I right about that? Is that what you think it is, Pharmac? I think that's what it does, yes. Yes. So it basically says you can't pick and choose and and do little deals with some health board and not with another and everything. If you want to sell your products in New Zealand, you have to give them to us at this price. And the drug companies hate it. They often lobby their president, the American one, saying this this is surely should be illegal amongst, in our trade agreements, but we carry on doing it. It's it's, by, it's enormously successful at getting drugs into New Zealand, brand-name drugs, at generic drug prices. It's terrific. It's by far the most successful anti-monopoly policy incident we have, far more effective than the Commerce Commission. And so if it's such a good thing, why don't we try extending it? I mean, even in medicine... Oh, we could try extending it to medical services. Some people engage in what's called medical tourism. They go to the Philippines or somewhere to get an operation because it's a quarter of the price. Um, that's a little bit dangerous in many ways, but Pharmac could perhaps neg- do this as well, ne- actually negotiate and take, you know, take responsibility for uh, pushing down the prices of medical services, which are huge in New Zealand. Uh, and then perhaps go further than that. Perhaps start buying uh, drywall for building materials, perhaps buying you know, cheap drywall from Australian or, or Indonesian or Vietnamese suppliers and wholesaling it into New Zealand. I mean, the I don't know how far we could go with this, but the idea it's not a revolutionary idea because we're doing it already with drugs and we're doing it very successfully. So at least why don't we think about extending that model?
0: Okay, so, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be Pharmac per se, although your example of building materials, I mean, you know, warm homes initiatives and the health benefits of that, you could arguably, you know, wrap that into to, yeah, you, to Pharmac, but you But yeah. you're talking about doing it in other industries as well.
1: Possibly, yeah. Or at least finding out why we couldn't, you know. Okay. I mean, there's no more powerful foe in terms of market power in the world than the big farmers, you know, the big Swiss, French, German, and American pharmaceutical companies. They are very powerful, and if we can get, if we can deal with them, maybe we can deal with lesser lesser powers as well.
0: So it's it's that's a, a very interesting um, concept. Look, um, so very interesting discussion Tim. Just just to 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 wrap up, I guess coming back to inflation, what is your outlook? for inflation from here, I guess, from where we're sitting today? Where do you see it going and um, why?
1: Gareth, you're tricking me here. That wasn't on your list of questions you were <laughs> going to ask. Economists make forecasts, as John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist said, not because they know but because they're asked. So <laughs> I take that as salutary. I, I, I have. I hope, of course, it'll carry on going down. and I, But I think... It's not something we should. It's something we should be more activist about, uh, making sure it goes down.
0: And obviously, we've discussed some ways and means of perhaps helping it to go down. But yeah. you did note in your article that sometimes you just have to wait.
1: Sometimes you have to wait. But I did note on the article, and I'd like to put this in that, the, to, to that one of the problems with inflation when it sort of kicks in is that some firms like. Some, or some agents in the economy, like these big firms, find it very easy to take advantage of and put their prices up, or even just to keep up. You know, but some people, like people living on fixed incomes and stuff, have, have got no way of adjusting, and they're the poor people. And they are really suffering from this increase in the cost of living, that inflation, which is part of inflation. So I did suggest that maybe it would be nice for the uh, government, one thing it could do is, say, cut the GST from 15 to 10%. That would immediately, overnight, literally, because everything in New Zealand is subject to GST, uh, from rents um, and mortgage rates, uh, cut infl- consumer prices by 4.9 or 8 percent or something. And it's five percent off 150, whatever. Say five percent. Um, that would be that would be a, a real sort of help to many struggling families, and. It I've tried to do the figures here. As far as I could tell, the boost, one of the, the biggest single beneficiary of inflation in New Zealand is the government. Uh, they get 15% of everything, every price increase in GST. And they also, the inflation and wages pushes people into higher income tax brackets. They dreaded bracket creep, which they, both our major parties refuse to commit to doing anything about scandalous. So they've probably got enough money in there. You'd need about 10 to $15 billion a year to reduce the GST rate from fifteen to ten percent. So, hey, Christmas present.
0: Yeah, indeed, <laughs> it, indeed. Well, look, Tim, um, thanks a lot for that. It's a really interesting discussion. That's Tim Hazeldyne, Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Auckland, and I'm Gareth Vaughan from Interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.